was a little concerned, uh, wondering how many husbands would actually show up this week after we were uh, working uh, in First Corinthians. Or I'm sorry, First Peter last week in the third chapter. I want to pick up our reading again today in the same passage. First uh, Peter chapter three, verses one to seven, is all about uh, Christian biblical marriage and uh, the countercultural nature of God's design for marriage. Uh, verses 1 to 6 talk about women uh, and in their roles. And uh, verse 7, he turns to the husband. I want to read just verse 7 and then have some prayer and we'll get into our study this morning. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's have a word of prayer as we turn attention to God's word this day. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you're a God who has spoken. In your mercy, you've given us propositional truth rooted in your eternal nature and perspectives. And not only that, but you've superintended it to be sure that we could have access to the things that you've said, your very God-breathed words. And you also, through the working of your Holy Spirit, ensure that we will understand that truth and find the enablement within to act in light of it. So, Lord, would you carry out that ministry in our midst this day? That we would see it as your word. See that it works within us. And then find the transforming that comes from that very work. We put our time in your hands and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the second chapter of 1 Peter and into the third chapter of 1 Peter, we've been looking at the issue of what practically it means to be living, as the ESV translates it, as sojourners in exiles. Uh, the NIV uses the word alien to describe it. The King James Version uses the word pilgrim. What does it really mean to live in the midst of a fallen world in those categories where we don't really belong? We belong because God's placed us there, but we don't really belong. It's not really our, our world anymore. It's not really our homeland. What does it mean to live that way? And we were looking at a number of these countercultural contrasts that were being identified in those, in those two chapters. The third chapter began with the seventh of those culture contrasts, and this one had to do with the nature of marriage. Biblical marriage will always stand out in the midst of the norms of a society, and that's always been true, not just in our contemporary day, but at all points in history, a truly biblical marriage stands out like light in the midst of darkness. I use that word biblical marriage advisedly because not every Christian marriage is a biblical marriage. Meaning you can have Christians who are not necessarily following what God has to say about the way that they live together. And God has very definite directions to give us in the framework of marriage life. And uh, biblical marriage will always stand out. As I said earlier, uh, verses 1 to 6 gives us that picture of some of the things that will be true of the redeemed wife living in harmony with God's word in the context of the marriage. Verse 7 turns attention to the husband. Verse 1 and verse 7 both start off the same way saying, in the same way, in the, or likewise, is the way the ESV translates it. And drawing attention in both cases back to the theme that's in the latter part of the second chapter, which is that theme of submission, being subject to. Uh, God says the wife is to be 
carrying that attitude of submission into the marriage, but also the husband is to be carrying that attitude of submission into the marriage. That's why in Ephesians, in a sort of parallel passage in the fifth chapter, also talking about biblical marriage, that passage begins by saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Biblical marriage is characterized by submission in which both the husband and the wife have given up by choice the right to live self-directed lives, self-centered lives. Both of them have given up those rights in light of a higher calling. Now, how the submission, the selflessness works out varies a little bit between the roles that God has assigned, but the characteristic of it doesn't vary. There is no place for a non-submissive husband. There's no place for a non-submissive wife in the context of biblical marriage. Now, the wife, of course, is showing some of that submissive attitude in the framework of the marriage by being supportive of and respectful of the leadership role that God has assigned to the husband. The husband shows his submissiveness by realizing that role is a role of servant leadership, as Ephesians 5 tells us, following the very example of the headship of the Lord Jesus, a servant leadership, putting the needs of the wife, of the family, above their own. It's not a position of privilege. It's a position of responsibility and selfless responsibility at that point. Well, that's all that we've talked about that. And in verse 7, we encounter five distinct ways in which that submissive attitude of the husband shows up as he carries out that leadership role in the context of the biblical marriage. The first two we examined last week. The first of those is that the husband is called to live with his wife in an understanding way, is the ESV translation. It translates the Greek word, a form of the Greek word gnosis, which is distinctive. It's it's a word in the Greek that, that is translated knowledge, but it's a different word than adon or oida in the Greek, which is also translated knowledge. Gnosis in the Greek refers to knowledge that grows out of relationship or experience. Adon or oida in the Greek refers to knowledge that is factually based. Uh, Not that they're in conflict with one another, but you see one has to be something that comes out of the experience and relationship. And I've talked to you before about the distinction in those words. If I say that I know my wife, I'm not just that I know facts about her, which would be sort of adon or oida, but I know her in the sense I have a relationship with her. I'm knowing her in an ever-deepening relational sort of manner. So you understand when I say I know my wife, I know her better than you know her. Uh, and that, so you see the distinction in those terms? That's what he's saying here. To be a biblical marriage, for the husband to be carrying out his biblical role, he needs to live with his wife in a gnosis manner. He needs to have that experiential deepening relationship. Then there's no way to have that apart from a deepening friendship and a deepening relationship with the wife. The theologians talk about marriage as being a covenant of companionship, drawing our attention to the fact God designed marriage, although there can be fruitfulness and children coming out of it, he designed it ultimately first and foremost, not for that, but for the purpose of companionship. As he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he created the woman. Companionship, friendship is intended in biblical marriage to be at the very heart. When it's not there... The other stuff that makes up marriage ends up being a hollow shell because marriage is first and foremost supposed to be about companionship. 
so often it gets pushed to the side. And he makes the comment that it's only through such knowing, this gnosis knowing, that the husband is able to live considerately with his wife. Because you can't really be considerate of someone unless you know them. Now you say, well, my motive was to be considerate. Well, that's okay. But you've got to know them well enough to know how to carry that out. If you're not being considerate and you think you are, that creates a problem. Uh, we need to know. We need to know. And by the way, let's summarize that statement by saying it is sin for the Christian husband to choose to live without knowledge. This isn't just some vague general recommendation from God. He's saying, if you're not doing this, you're sinning. The husband is called to have an understanding and live in the basis of that understanding with his wife. Secondly, we saw last week the husband is called upon to honor his wife. The Greek word tameo, which means to recognize the dignity of another, to treat in a dignified manner. The value of another person is evident. And so the core question for the biblical husband is, do your actions and your attitudes and your words all show that you value her? That, that it could truly be said that you honor this woman? Brothers and sisters, you don't need me to tell you that there are many ways that people can be disrespected and not valued. Many ways where honor is undercut in the context of day-in and day-out interaction within any set of relationships, but certainly in the context of the home. Again, this is not just a useful recommendation. God says if the husband is not honoring, showing honor to the wife, the husband is sinning before God. Do you follow it? Not just not living wisely, it's living sinfully. All right, well, let's move on into today's study. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. The husband, in the biblical framework of marriage, is called upon by God to take gender differences into account. Not to ignore them, but to take them into account. God says, husband, Recognize male and female are different. They're not alike. They're different. Oh, there are similarities in lots of ways. We're creating the image of God, of course, and all of that. But there's still differences. And that holds true in our era despite the blending of genders and the blurring of gender division that's so characteristic of our contemporary culture. Each gender has uniquenesses tied to it. Uh, each Gender has its strengths and its weaknesses. Only a fool ignores it. But then only a fool says in his heart, there is no God. We live in a world full of fools. That ought not to surprise us. Here's one of the ways where fools show their true colors. When they don't understand and take into account and recognize those gender differences. Now, here's the point for the biblical husband, trying to have a biblical marriage. God said, husband, don't expect your wife to be like you. And when we stare back at him with kind of a, 
uncomprehending sort of look, he just shakes his head and he says, I'll make it very personal. He says, Gary, don't expect your wife to be like you. I said, well, that's a, that's a, why not? I mean, you know, what's wrong with me? Uh, God says, there's differences here. A husband, in a way commanded by God, is called upon to know the differences that exist between the man and the woman, between he and his wife, and in love, compensate for such differences and adapt to such differences, not ignore such differences. He says, listen, keep this in the front of your mind. Every marriage is going to be a little different how all of this works out, of course, because everybody's unique to some degree. And, and that combination of things that make up my wife, Kathy, wonderful combination, by the way, but that combination of things uh, is different than what makes up another person. Similarities, but uniquenesses, too. And God says, okay, that's the one I've placed you with. That's the one that you're to study and understand so that you know where those differences are and you know what they're all about and you learn how to adapt and compensate for those realities in which you live. That's why there's not carbon copies out there. And Christians sometimes get into trouble when they try to carbon copy marriage to marriage. Carbon copy the biblical commands, yes, but understand those commands flesh out within the framework of the individuals. And there's differences that God has made as part of the very created order in people. And by the way, need I say it, to decide as a husband not to understand those differences and compensate or adapt to them reveals not only selfishness, but sin in the husband. If I'm in marriage counseling with someone, I can say to them, well, Brother, you're sinning. So before we can get anywhere else in this marriage, we need to, first of all, let's get down on our knees. And you need to admit this before God and acknowledge it. Confess your sin. And he's faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But we can't get anywhere until you call a spade a spade. Until you understand what the truth is of what's been going on in this relationship. It is sin. Now, some people say, well, what does exactly this passage mean when it's saying that the wife is the, quote, weaker vessel? Because I've seen people grab the middle of a verse or two words in a verse and then dig a hole deep enough for the Grand Canyon. And then I think they really understood the scriptures. Well, what does it mean? Well, here's the two words, weaker vessel, translate asthenes in the Greek, which means to be frail or to be inadequate in certain strength requirements. The word vessel is skuios in the Greek, which means jar, literally. Same word, by the way, you find in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, for it says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Same Greek word. Basically, he's just saying, listen, part of the reality of gender differences is that the particular vessel, the particular jar <laughs> that the woman was given is different than the jar given to the man. Uh, that's no great insight, by the way, for you guys. You should, all of us should already understand that. But he says, listen, within the framework of that, certain things are true. In God's plan of creation, and that's who did this, by the way, in God's plan of creation, 
It's generally true that a woman doesn't have the, quote, brute strength of a man. Which is why, by the way, stepping aside from this pulpit for a moment, why all of this discussion of whether there ought to be transgenders and so forth in sports is, just reveals again the foolishness of humanity. <laughs> let's, let's, whatever other things are going on, you still have these realities of differences. And we ought to take that into consideration or we show ourselves to be fools. At any rate, God says, listen, in his plan of creation, the brute strength generally of the man is greater. And therefore, that's the reason in God's plan of things, the man generally, because of that, is in a position of protection and provision. Now, he doesn't mean a woman can't be providing and there are times protecting. But it just means that's what that strength was there for. Not to dominate, not to beat up, but to protect and to provide. But it doesn't mean... It is a misunderstanding of the Greek here to say, well, that means a woman doesn't have any strength or stamina. Hey, the fact of the matter is, there are women who have far more stamina than a man. Classic example is my pioneer wife. Uh, she's still going long after I've uh, done. You know, I can't keep going. I, I joke with her a lot. If, we, if it was back in the wagon tra- train days... She'd be still going forward in the wagon. I'd be across somewhere in Ohio or Indiana, you know, along the, along the trail. His, he's gone, you know, and she'd have to end up in Oklahoma, which is where some of her ancestors did. <laughs> anyway, I wouldn't have made it. That's the truth. So she, women, it doesn't mean women can't have stamina and strength. What it does mean is that the man is called upon to be considerate and loving and assist when needed and where needed. Each woman will have her own combination of strengths and weaknesses, just like her husband. And each wife has her own areas of competency and inadequacy, just like her husband. That's the neat thing about marriage and God's plan in biblical marriage. He puts together two people, both of whom have strengths and competencies, weaknesses and inadequacies. And hopefully as they mesh, the unit is much stronger and less weak, much more adequate and less inadequate than it would have been separated. At least that's God's plan in it. So here is the question, men. How considerate are you of what the ESV translates here as the weaker vessel? And let me add, it is sin not to be considerate of those differences. Sin. It's called sin what it is. So, well, I don't think that's quite as bad a sin as this is. What? You're in now in the position of judging as God defines something to be sin? Can't be quite as bad as that sin. Well, I think it might be enough that God identifies it as sin. You know, it's like, that means we ought to deal with it. We ought to deal with it. It's sin not to be considerate of the very differences tied to the creation of God's plan in this world. Well, the fourth thing that the husband is challenged about, he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. The husband is called upon in the context of the marriage to recognize that before the Lord, there is a true equality existing between the husband and the wife. 
Now, the scripture is very clear on that, other places, but Christians sometimes, either in ignorance of the scripture or in purposeful disregard of the scriptures, uh, which it is, maybe varies from time to time, uh, don't want to live out the concept itself. But listen, the scripture is very plain. Galatians 3.28 is an example. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're joint heirs, as he puts it here in First Peter. Joint heirs. It's not like, well, the husband's an heir and the wife gets to come along. That's, that's not the way it is. It's not like this legal system we live under. You know, joint heirs. Joint heirs. Any role difference in the context of the biblical marriage has to do with God's plan and order. It has nothing to do with equality. It has everything to do with God's plan and order. Same way in the church, by the way. Any differences in the church have to do with gifting and God's sovereign distribution of gifts and his purpose and plan for these people to be in this role, these people to be in that role, not because they're on some other level. Remember, we're all priests earlier in Peter, before the Lord. We're all on the same level, but we have different tasks, different calls, different roles. But it's not because somebody is a higher value than somebody else is. And in the context of the marriage, Different roles, clearly, that's the concept here in First Peter 3. Some different tasks that have been assigned to each. But it doesn't mean they're on different planes. It just means they're equal, joint heirs, but they have different calls. Each one is equally important to the overall process. Differing roles, but not differing value. Now, that's pretty revolutionary stuff. Uh, as I say, it's light in the darkness. And the husband, the Christian husband, because I'll zero in on the Christian husband here, the Christian husband can easily quench the truth of all of this. How? How does the Christian husband quench it? Because they, in practice, don't live as if they were joint heirs. In practice, he doesn't live as if they had equal value in the sight of God and in the kingdom itself. So here's some questions that a Christian husband can pose to themselves to see whether they're quenching or obeying the truth. Number one, how important do you see her ministry compared to your ministry? How important do you see her ministry to be compared to your ministry? Both ministries, while different, are equally important in God's sovereign plan. So you don't call upon the one person to just give up their ministry. Both carry out their ministry within the framework of God's leadership in the home. Or another thing, how important do you see her tasks and roles in the home compared to yours? How important do you see them? It's sort of like necessary, but not all that terribly important. And it's really important that I'm here to, you know, do whatever. Uh, or do we see all of them as equally important in God's eyes? I mean, both the husband and the wife, critically and equally important in the achieving of that biblical marriage and all that God intends that biblical marriage to do, not only in the lives of children, should God bless that family with them, but in the community and in the fallen world in which we find ourselves. 
Or here's another question that the Christian husband can ask themselves. How important do I see her spiritual life to be next to mine? Am I doing things that carve out time for her to be able to have opportunities to be in devotions and prayer with the Lord, studying, getting involved in those activities, let's say a Titus 2 ministry or something, where they can receive the value and the input into their lives? Or do I see all of it about me and all of the adjustments that need to be made to carve out time for the man to have his opportunity maybe to have devotions or maybe to have some spiritual involvement? How important do you see the spiritual life of the wife to be? And you see, you get past lip service here, because you can say, well, I think we're equal in the Lord, but in practice, does it work out that way? Are you being supportive in the fashions that you need to be to ensure that this can happen? Or here's another question. I mean, we could go on and on with them. I won't. It's too convicting for me to talk about them too far. But uh, here's another one. Uh, How important do you see her dreams and desires to be next to your dreams and desires? Are they equally important? And both of you, of course, ultimately wanting to be doing what God wants, which means he may well be moving within in both of you, changing some of the things that you think you might want and replacing them with the things that he wants you to have. Uh, but at any rate, how do, you, how do you see it? How important do you perceive it to be? The husband is called upon to recognize the true equality of husband and wife. And that is not solely having to do with redemption. It is not solely having to do with how somebody is saved. It has to do with how somebody lives in this world. Are we recognizing that essential equality? Still different roles. The husband has his role, the wife has her role. God's defining those things. But let's not, let's not have roles camouflaging a disobedience and attitude on the part of a husband or a wife in that regard. Then he goes on and he turns our attention to a fifth issue here. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman showing honor as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The fifth thing that the husband is called upon here and reminded of by the Heavenly Father is that we are to realize that there is an important connection between our obedience to biblical mandate and answers to prayer. There's an important connection to not be fulfilling the biblical commands, the biblical roles in the home. This passage tells us hinders the prayer of the husband. Word hindered here, in capto, means to impede, interrupt. Hey, listen, do you need me to tell you it's a serious problem when your prayers are hindered? I mean, we prioritize praying here on a Sunday morning. And I hope you're prioritizing praying every day. <laughs> I'd say it's a big problem if the time you're giving over to that is facing a major hindrance, an obstacle. And God says, in the context of this directive about the home, he says, hey, your prayers can be hindered 
if you're not doing what I've called you to do. If you're not being what I've called you to be. And you say, well, listen, I'm a redeemed child of God. I can boldly come into the presence of the Lord. Well, that's very true. But if you're living in rebellion against the things that God has said, even as a redeemed child, he takes you to the woodshed before he listens and builds in response to the issue that you're asking about. Because he's a loving Heavenly Father. That's why we have Hebrews chapter 12. To remind us that he takes that role seriously and he'll discipline us for our own good. To refuse to carry out the God-given roles, by the way, for the wife as well, is sin. I mean, that's what it is. It's not like oversight or, well, I meant well. It's sin. That's what the scripture says. And when you sin, it harms you, it harms your marriage, and it's displeasing to the Heavenly Father, whom we're called upon to learn what pleases Him, and live pleasing lives to Him as redeemed children. Nobody's saved by living a pleasing life or saved by Christ. But we grow as disciples by living a pleasing life and enabled by the Holy Spirit. And He says, listen, you're not pleasing the Father when you're not dealing with sin properly. When a husband sins in this way, he harms his marriage. When a wife sins, she harms the marriage. I'd say the conclusion out of that would be that God takes biblical roles pretty seriously. This isn't, this isn't a counseling part of the Word of God, although it can be used for counseling. It's an exhortative part of the Word of God, which is like God saying, get your act together. Here's what my will is. This is what I want you to do. That's what it's about here. God takes the biblical roles in marriage seriously. Biblical roles are not options that you could try out once in a while just to maybe make some improvements. Biblical roles are commands. You don't have choices about commands except the choice of obedience or disobedience, which is the same thing as the choice of Sin or not sin. That's the way commands work, you know. Uh, at least God's commands. I know human commands have lots of gray areas tied to them. <laughs> but not God's commands. He says, listen, this is the case here. A refusal to live counterculturally in a marriage, i.e. having a biblical marriage, will definitely impact the spiritual life of the people in the marriage. Because that refusal is sin. In fact, it's not just in marriage issues. The scripture makes it plain that a believer's prayer life is always hindered by having persisting and unconfessed sin in their life. So it's not unique just to the issue of marriage. A believer if they are having persisting and unconfessed sin in their life, is having spiritual problems and will be under the disciplinary hand of a Heavenly Father who's redeemed them. That's the truth of it. And people will come and say, well, but I've not been involved in, in adultery or I've not, been in, I've not been beating my wife or something like that. And they think, well, you know, at least, at least in my life there's no persisting and unconfessed sin. And I come back and say, well, let's look at what the scripture has to say. Yes, you're correct. Adultery, sin. Yep, 
That's a good thing you're not doing that. Beating up your wife, not good. Uh, sin, that's, that's, not, that's not how the extra strength is supposed to be used. Uh, but God says some other things here. How are you doing on those? Oh, well, not so, not so good. Uh, uh, well, those are sin too. How long have you been persisting in that? Oh, basically since we got married. It's like, uh, and you guys are still together? You know, miracle of all miracles. You know, God has called for you to live in a different manner. And he gives you the enabling of the Spirit, new life in Christ, and empowerment to transform you so that that very life difference can be seen. The Bible, again, makes this connection very plain. Think about this connection between undealt with sin in our lives and answers to prayer. Uh, later on in the third chapter of First Peter, in verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's it mean to do evil? It means to sin. I mean, that's what that means. This face of the Lord against those that are doing that. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Well, what's it mean to be upright? Well, in one sense, it means to have found Christ as Savior because then we're clothed in his righteousness and we can boldly come in his presence. But it doesn't only mean that. It means living uprightly as well, even as redeemed children. And so God says, listen, this can be a problem if you're not living uprightly. If you're knowingly and consciously not carrying out what I've commanded you to carry out in the context of your marriage. In Proverbs 15, 29, he says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He hears their prayer. Later in Proverbs verse, chapter 28, verse 9, it says, If one turns away his ear from the hearing of the law. And by the way, that image is the same one you encounter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where it's talking about people in the churches who no longer put up with sound doctrine and go away, have their ears tickled by other people. That's the same phrase, same concept. He says, if anyone turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination before God. I'd say that's sobering. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, that's, that's pretty sobering stuff. Here I thought my prayer was a sign of my spirituality. Well, uh, it can be. But wouldn't it be terribly ironic if, if my prioritizing of that prayer time, I was actually prioritizing something that God was viewing as an abomination, not because it was prayer, but because I was unrighteous in praying. Because I wasn't being who he called me to be. I was knowingly persisting in patterns that were displeasing to him. All right, so I come back. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Make it pretty plain what biblical marriage is all about. And God didn't give us that just to satisfy our curiosity. He gave it to us as his children because he said, this is the way it's supposed to work out. If you don't do this, not only do you displease me, but you're sinning if you don't do it. By the way, in premarital counseling, I always go over first. Peter chapter 3. I go over Ephesians chapter 5 and other such things because I want people to understand what God said about this thing that you're getting into. This is how he says it. And uh, God's challenging us about it. So is it possible that in many marriages, prayer problems 
stem from rebelliousness toward God in the context of how their marriage is carrying out? Even if they're staying together? I've had people say to me, well, I think God's only interested that we stay together. And my response to them in love is, well, it's obviously you haven't read much of the Bible then. How about we discover what God's really said? Not because staying together is a bad thing, but there's a lot of other bad things that can happen in a marriage. Let's address them. Let's look at them. Let's see what God has to say about them. So men, are you living with your wife in an understanding way? Are you showing honor to your wife? Are you taking gender differences into account in the way you carry out your role? Are you recognizing the true equality that exists? You're both redeemed joint heirs. Are you, are, you, are, you not, are you free of confusing role differences with value differences in the sight of God? How are you approaching it? And I could do the same with women as we go back and we could recount the things we looked at in verses 1 to 6. Well, where does it leave us? Generally on our knees. Uh, I've been married a lot of years and I still find my inclination to drop and say, you know, long way to go, Lord. Long way to go. Uh, but at least I know where to go. And I know what God wants to see. And I can begin in process to, to get moving in that direction. And sometimes I need reminded, because haven't you found that you could understand something from God's word and then just gradually lose the cutting edge of that understanding? And then later on, God has to drive it back home to you and say, ah, yeah, right, right, uh, I need that. That's why we need to be in his word all the time. This isn't the first time you've heard 1 Peter 3. I pray it's not the last time you hear 1 Peter 3, even if it's not from me that you hear it. We need to keep hearing it so that we would be who God has called us to be. Verse 8 marks a shift in the third chapter. We're still talking about countercultural things. Living is light in the darkness. But now the scene shifts away from marriage and turns attention to the church. And it says, I have some things I want to see true of those that are my people that I've assembled together, that make up a church family. There are certain marks that want to be seen in that group. I want them to stand out as countercultural, where the society that they live in scratches their head and they can't figure out why people are there and what they're doing and why they're like that. And uh, we'll look at some of those marks of the countercultural church, Lord willing, the next time that we're together as we move into verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together this day. Thank you for the redemption we've found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to be at work in our lives as we grow as disciples in this life, enabling us through your Spirit, transforming us through your Word. Guide and direct, we pray. We put our upcoming week in your hands. For we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.